Welcome to the Brilliantly Resilient Podcast. What's your train wreck? Everyone has one. The question is, are you going to live there or are you just visiting? Let's check in with Mary Fran and Kristen to learn how to come through not broken, but brilliant. Hey everyone, before we dive into this week's episode, we have a resource that we wanted to tell you about. Transform every week of yours with our brilliance bit that will deliver right to your email inbox. Sign up for it at brilliantlyresilient.net and keep living brilliantly resilient. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Brilliantly Resilient Live. We've already been diving right in to to uh, our new buddy Geraldine. Gerilyn Ritter, uh, with, with, oh, this is going to be fun because we are resilience rock stars in this room today. We are resilience rock stars. But I wanted to read this real quick statement that uh, Gerilyn sent about when we do our little questionnaire of what the episode is going to be about and how we walk everybody into to our, our new friend's journeys. Here's, this is what I love. Finding purpose and staying positive in the face of pain, doubt, uncertainty and loss of control. So Hmm. I really want to land on this staying positive. I think that that is the biggest challenge right now for people as, as we're moving through all kinds of plans being destroyed and sucker punches coming our way. It's the staying positive, especially in these days of nonstop hit after hit after hit, how we stay positive. So no pressure to solve all of our problems, Geraldine, but we've got a big plate that you have in front of you. And let's dive into a little bit of your story. Thanks for being here. And let's, um, let's get right into it. Fantastic. I'm thrilled to be having this conversation with you guys. We're so, so excited us, that you're so here. You're, you're, you know, uh, when we were, before we came on, we you said, oh my goodness, your website says, what's your train wreck? It's a little bit. Our uh, website. Yeah, our yeah, website. Our website is, and, and, and Gerilyn had that yeah. horrific <laughs> experience <laughs> of the train wreck. <laughs> oh my God, those pictures. Well, it is funny because a, a train wreck becomes sort of a, a metaphor, you know, it's a word we use. Oh, that meeting was a train wreck, or you know, and like, well, actually not. <laughs> oh, oh, and and does anybody, when they catch your eye in a room and says something like that, they go, "Oh my God, I'm so sorry," because I they would never want to know. say that word in front of you. Oh my God. Or, or uh, hey, that meeting went off the rails, or that. Oh. <laughs> so many of them, and I always laugh and say, you know what? It takes a lot more than a bad metaphor to upset me at this point. <laughs> I'll bet it does. So your experience was, tell us what this was about, because a lot of people, I mean, clearly we're from the Philly area, so we know directly of what you speak, but a lot of people may not. So clue them in on what your experience is. Sure. So I was a passenger on Amtrak 188, which derailed outside of Philadelphia in 2015, going 106 miles an hour. And it derailed on a curve designed for a maximum of 50. Eight people mm. were killed. The first car of the train was was just crushed. In the pictures, it doesn't even look like a train car. It looks like a, a debris field with some big wheels in the middle of it. And that's the car that I was riding in. Ugh. And, you know, the thing that always strikes me about the accident is just, it was such an ordinary day. This was a regular commuter train. Lots of people going back and forth between New York City and Philadelphia. 
I'd been down in Washington, D.C. that day, was on my way home, and everything was very normal until it Until it wasn't. Exactly. I, I, before COVID, I was on that train. I was in that Philly to D.C. corridor. Uh, yeah. There were times where it was weekly that I was, I was on that train. Now, I, I've reflected because I, part of my responsibilities for my job were managing our Washington office. I've probably taken that train a hundred times. I, I thought back, you know, over the, over the previous five years of my career. And, and again, you just really never know. You never know. So that, that, as you said, completely ordinary day. Did you have a sense that something was wrong before the crash, particularly given the fact that you'd been on that that train so many times, did you kind of know this is too fast? Something's not right here. Only just before the crash. Usually right. I pull out of Philadelphia pretty slow. I'm always impatient because I get off at the very next stop in New Jersey. And I had, you know, gotten on the train in Philly. And I sat down, texted my husband, leaving Philly, home soon. We were very ordinary again. We were texting about my youngest son's baseball game. And mm. my eight-year-old wasn't exactly the greatest baseball player. And he'd actually gotten a hit. You know? And I, I still remember <laughs> that. And I said, you know, ETA, hour and a half or something. You know, put my phone down, decided I needed something out of my briefcase. And I stood up and reached into the luggage rack above my head. And as I was standing in the aisle, reaching above my head, I did feel like, whoa. And, and just because I stumbled a little bit. So I kind of had to hold on tighter to that luggage rack. And then I realized I actually couldn't even let go to reach into my briefcase. I, I was holding on to keep my balance. And then I felt us start to tip. And I started to tip face forward. And, and you know, the thoughts go through your mind so quickly. I just rejected it. You know, that I can't be tipping. Trains don't tip. Trains mm. don't tip over. And I just remember a flash of realization. We were, we were indeed tipping over. And I have no more memory for days after that. I know, you know, I, I later found out that, that someone had found me. I still don't know who. I was a Jane Doe. You know, if you think about it, if, if a guy gets thrown out of the train, he probably has a wallet in his pocket. But a mm. woman put her purse under the seat or something like that. And uh, so I was a Jane Doe. I don't know who found me. I know somebody found me and got me to a local hospital very quickly where they were real. They realized I was far too injured and they life flighted me by helicopter to the newest level one trauma center in the city, which happened to be at Penn, Presby Penn Presbyterian Medical Center. And that absolutely saved my life. You know, I, I know only from the timestamp on Jane Doe's medical records at that first hospital that I must have been found very quickly because I was at that hospital within about 30 minutes of the time of the crash. So really? Somebody out there, I just think, you know, I thank God every day found me quickly and got me where I needed to be. And they got me on a helicopter got a ventilator on me because I was crushed. I wasn't breathing. I'd lost a lot of blood, <sighs> stabilized me and immediately took me into surgery to start putting me back together again. Put me back together again. I'm wondering how long did it take from, from that airlift to you being able to leave to the hospital, to being able to have some kind of 
normalcy? Oh, it was a couple of months. I, I was in the ICU. I was on a ventilator for well over a week. I was unconscious for several days. I regained consciousness several days later. I was essentially immobilized. Um, I'd broken vertebra in my neck and my lower back. Uh, my, all, I, I'd hit with such force, you know, 106 miles an hour is pretty fast to be thrown out of a train. And so all of my abdominal organs had been thrown up into my chest, you know, mm -hmm. through the diaphragm, that thick leathery muscle. My mm -hmm. stomach was up above my heart. My colon was in my armpit. My spleen was destroyed. My bladder was ruptured. All of my intestines. Wow. Oh, my God. I had a doctor tell me, you know, this is what blunt force trauma looks like. And then orthopedically, my, my ribs were crushed. You know, all, basically all the ribs on my left side, not just broken, but, but crushed into little pieces. They call it a flail chest. And then my pelvis was the worst. It was broken in half. The right side was not connected to the left side. And then some object had penetrated it. So the whole wound was very open and dirty and bleeding. Um, oh my God. Yes, they, they did not think I was gonna live. Um, when my husband, he searched all night, you know, he'd been texting with, and then he gets a pop-up on his phone, Amtrak derailed outside of Philadelphia. And he didn't know if it was my train, right? It's a heavily, you know, traveled area. And he starts calling and calling. And then he got the idea to do Find My iPhone. And mm. he used the Find My iPhone app. And, and the little icon came up on a map at exactly the location that the news was reporting. <sighs> train had crashed. And the icon was about 20 feet off the track. And he said, you know, he was hoping I wasn't hurt, right? Maybe I was just crawling out of the train or something like that. Um, but he would search for me all night long. He wouldn't find me until the next morning. Uh, just going from hospital to hospital. I'm looking for my wife, my, my sons. I have three sons. They were 15, 12, and 8 at the time. They were, they were calling hospitals. I'm looking for my mom. Do you have anybody named Geraldine? Uh, the, the texts between my sons and my husband that night were still very hard for me to read. Oh, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. Yeah. My 15 year old dad, have you found mom? Dad, I need my mom. And they're oh. watching news. Dad, people are dead. Dad, five. Dad, six. Have you found her yet? Um, yeah. How I, amazing I, for them when the news came that you were alive. How long did it take to get that news to them? The accident happened about 9.30 at night, um, about 6.30 the next morning. My oldest oh, what a night. School, and I think they were just on automatic pilot. Um, her babysitter had come over and was helping get them out the door while my husband was in Philadelphia looking for me. And uh, my, my oldest son got the news as he was walking to the bus stop, and he said he just fell down. My, just a text oh. from my husband. We found her. She's alive. Because as the night wore on, you know, my husband thought, okay, if she's okay, even if she didn't have her phone, she'd find a way to call me. And then as the reports of, of fatalities came in, you know, he realized six, seven hours after the accident, I was either too badly hurt to call or I was gone. Mm. And he said he remembers just sinking down, you know, in some random hallway, you know, and just praying you know, please let her be hurt. God, please just let her be hurt. Wow. You know, I tell that story because really when you go through something like this, you don't go through it alone. It feels very lonely. And I felt very lonely through much of my recovery. 
but really the whole family and the people you love do go through it too. They have their own journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that's, that's so the, true. The title of your book, uh, Bone by Bone, obviously reflects your healing, <laughs> but in sort of a metaphorical way, it probably reflects their healing as well. I mean, that little incremental piece by piece healing as they not went with you on the journey, but were sort of beside you and watching and the the trauma endured, as you said, by yourself was one thing, but to watch your boys and your husband go through that must have added a whole other layer of trauma to you. You know, it, it did. And I was so worried. They didn't let me see my sons for a couple of weeks in the hospital. They wouldn't let my sons come. I think number one, they didn't think I was going to make it and they didn't, you know, my, my, my parents, my husband didn't want the boy's last image of their mom to be mm-hmm. broken and bruised on a ventilator in a hospital. And, yeah. you know, when I was on the ventilator, I also couldn't speak. So they, the thought was it would be too scary for them. And that was probably right, but it really did bother me. You know, it, yeah. it, it bothered me to not see them. And when I finally got off the ventilator and I could speak, and we knew I had a long road ahead of me, but but some of the danger um, seemed to have passed. I said, you know, I want to see them. My husband said, oh, okay, we'll work on that. I said, no, 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 now. <laughs> <laughs> Not taking over an answer today. But he went and got him. I said, no, no, now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I have a question here. When I'm thinking about, you just described all of the injuries and I'm sure that that's not even all of them, but you painted such the picture. As you start the road to healing, does, do do the doctors come in and say, this is the massive picture. We got to go from here to a thousand or do they just do it bone by bone, piece by piece each day? And, And were you that kind of person that wanted the whole picture? Did you just want one next right step at a time? I absolutely wanted the whole picture, especially once I had recovered enough to kind of have my my wits about me a little bit. And that was something that was frustrating to me. And I don't fault the doctors, although our medical system is not super strong on coordination of care. I had so many specialists. I had not every kind of specialist out there, but most of them (laughs) because I had so many injuries, you know, and so you had pulmonologists and you had cardiologists and you had gastroenterologists and urologists. And certainly, you know, orthopedic surgeons and trauma surgeons and neurologists with a broken vertebra. You know, I had every kind of ologist and they come in one by one with their teams. I can't even keep track of what day it is, much less, you know, who's doing what test when. And I remember after my initial hospitalization, I was talking with the hospital and providing some feedback. I said, you know, it wasn't clear to me who was the quarterback, you know, who who did I talk to about an issue that didn't seem to fit into somebody's precise specialty? And the doctors could tell me when this might get better, that might get better, when I needed a new surgery for that issue. But when would I feel like myself again? I think the real, the reality is nobody really knew. And Mm. I have a lot of folks who said, you know, I have seen these injuries individually before. I have never seen anybody survive all of them at one time. And when they did find me, the trauma surgeon, I was, I was a Jane Doe and my husband, I was the last unidentified surviving passenger from the crash. Really? 
and had gone to almost every hospital in Philly. Everybody had identified every patient they had. And then he found that there was a Jane Doe still in one hospital. And he knew at that point as morning broke, if that wasn't me, I was gone. And he walked in and he didn't recognize me. He, oh my God. And well, you know, I had a big cervical collar on, plus I was on a ventilator. You know, my eyes were taped shut. I had surgical drapes covering me. I was immobilized. So really he was just going off my forehead. <laughs> oh, you can't really blame me. <laughs> they, don't, they don't tell you to look at the foreheads when you're trying to identify, you know, it's, it's, oh my gosh. I, wow. I keep coming back to this idea of you being a Jane Doe yeah. and obviously that's something nobody ever thinks they're going to be in their life, but I can't help but think that as you are identified by something that wasn't your name, that this whole experience took your identity away. There were times when it absolutely did. And actually the title has a little bit of double meaning. It does refer to the gradual, very incremental nature sometimes of the progress you feel while healing. But there's also a poem by Emily Dix Dickinson and the last line of that poem is bone by bone. And it, it starts out with, there is a pain so utter. And it talks about really deep pain and your brain almost protects you and helps you to forget about it to some extent, that sense of distance, that sense of isolation, alienation mm. is a protective mechanism, but it's also very lonely. And, and that disassociation, they call it dissociation, they say it's like the hallmark of trauma, that trauma patients often feel very disconnected with the folks around them. And it's why I chose the title, but it also, it really plagued me during, during my recovery, that sense of you don't feel like yourself. It doesn't feel like your body and nobody around me could understand no matter how much they tried and loved me and wanted to they weren't in my body. They had, they could not experience the pain of all types that I was going through. And that was one of the hardest things. It really was. So knowing where we began this, when I was introducing you about finding positivity in the pain, <laughs> was that a, was that a critical moment that in your journey that you, that a switch went off or walk me through how that came to be? You know, in the beginning, it was actually easier to be positive because I wasn't supposed to live. <laughs> you know, I yeah, have, winning. I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> I have four siblings, uh, two of my brothers and my sister and their spouses are all physicians. Uh, when my husband found me that morning, the trauma surgeon said, do you want to know about her injuries? He said, nope, I got people to call, talk to her brother. They're all doctors. And the trauma surgeon got on the phone with one of my brothers and started listing my injuries. And my brother said, how is she still alive? Mm -hmm. and the surgeon said, you need to come quickly. Um, that they didn't think I was going to be for too long. And so my family flew in from all around the country, Washington State, Texas, Colorado. And one of my brothers packed a dark suit for my funeral. And mm -hmm. so when, you're, when the assumption is and the medical advice is that she's probably not going to live. And I did. And they also did tests and said, well, we don't know how. I had a trauma surgeon tell me I have no medical for why you don't have a brain injury. 
I was concussed, certainly. But he said, the amount of force your body absorbed to do what it did to your bones, he said, I cannot explain why your brain isn't swollen. So wow. he had so much to be grateful for. Yeah. I was alive. I was receiving the best medical care in the country. And I didn't have a major head injury. And despite having broken four vertebrae, they could tell I had movement in my legs. I wasn't paralyzed. So that was like our mantra. Like we were, you know, I was only semi aware, but my family was around me and I was, I was going to make it. So it was almost a, I won't say a false positivity, a false gratitude. It was genuine. It was very genuine, but it was not really based on a thorough understanding of how difficult the road ahead would be. Mm. Um, And that really carried us through the first month, the first month and a half, because no matter how hard it was or how much it hurt, I was really conscious of how lucky I was to be there with my family around me and that my boys would have their mom. We didn't know really in what shape I would be, but my boys would have their mom. So I was very positive in the beginning. It was actually a couple months after the accident when I left the hospital and transitioned back home that reality set in. Mm. And that's where I actually had the hardest time staying positive. And, you know, some of the things you associate with trauma, PTSD, depression, hit hard at that point um, after the accident, um, but not in the immediate aftermath in the hospital. Do you think that that was... um due to, and I would imagine it would be, you know, when you're in the hospital, you've got all these people around you and everybody's, you know, uh, ministering to you in the way that they should to try to help you move. And then you're back into the place where you are kind of the boss. Like, this is my territory and I want a cup of tea, but I can't make myself one. Like even the simplest little thing was beyond anything you could imagine at that point. That is so true. You know, I, I didn't see my bedroom for a year. I couldn't go upstairs. <laughs> so I'm in my own house, living in the room off the kitchen, which is the only place my wheelchair will go. Oh. And, you know, everything's the same, but nothing is the same. And I had been a, a, a tremendous traveler for my work. My work has always required me to travel a lot. So the year before the accident, I was in Uganda, I was in Ethiopia, I was in India, I was in Brussels, I was in Beijing. And now I can't drive. I can't even go to the Mm. bathroom by myself. So to have that lack of control, I don't know. I'm kind of bossy. I like to be in charge. (laughs) It was was tough for me. I can't say I was the best patient. (laughs) Well, independence. You're extremely, you were extremely independent. And to have that, it wasn't even like it was chipped away. It was just gone. Yeah, it was just gone. And I don't think anything could ever prepare you for something like that. I, I One morning I, I was starting to use my walker and, and at least move around a little bit. And I decided I was going to make my own cup of coffee. I was tired of asking everybody to do stuff for me. So I crutch over to the to the coffee maker. I think I can do this. They, they taught me in physical therapy how to push something down a counter and crutch along with it, push it again. So I make the coffee. I put milk in it. I look at the cup. I'm standing at the counter and then I realized, what am I going to do now? I can't take it to the kitchen table. I can't sit down. I can't carry a cup of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I need both hands to, to, you know, because I can only put weight on one leg. I'm thinking, dang, 
coffee to the table and sit down and drink it. <laughs> so even a little win became another frustration. Little thing, but it, yeah. it, you know, to me, it kind of symbolized a little bit like, wow, talk about the things you take for granted. Um, yeah. yeah. So, with the book, what what was your purpose in putting your story out there, and how do you feel? I mean, because what happened to you was just beyond what happens to pretty much anybody else ever and and how did your story how do you feel like it related to other people going through trauma and how you were able to kind of help them get through that you know it's interesting i wasn't intending to write a book uh but i i did end up being out of i was on disability leave for my job for almost two and a half years i had mm. so many surgeries had so much rehabilitation to do so much pain that I had to get off all the painkillers. So that's a whole nother process. Mm. And I was invited a couple of times to give some talks, um, one in a, to a, to a church group about my journey and, and, and what I'd learned, how I made sense of it. I was asked to give a talk at the hospital where I was saved, just, you know, thoughts of patient perspective on trauma and in doing some of these talks, so many people came up to me afterward and said, oh, my brother or my mother or my friend. And it it, it really isn't, I mean, as you all know from, from doing this fantastic show, everybody has something, everybody mm -hmm. has something. And it might not be an actual train wreck, but very few of us are so lucky as to go through life and never face a terrible diagnosis or the breakup of a relationship or a big professional setback, all of these things. And the more I read, you know, that was my reaction to trying to understand and pull out of my depression. Why am I feeling this way? And I started to become a student of trauma. I, start, I started reading textbooks. I read, you know, memoirs. I read biographies. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And you really do realize that there are techniques that help. There are things that I was learning to do. And I was hesitant to write a book. And I talked to a, a just a tremendous man who's been a real great mentor of mine. And he said, you know, you have to write a book. Because I was telling him some crazy thing that had happened in one of these surgeries. And I said, uh, you know, I said, look, that just seems sort of self-congratulatory. I said, I didn't do anything to deserve to live. And and those eight people that, that died in the accident didn't deserve to die. He, and he said, no, 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 you're getting it all wrong. He said, you have a story to tell. There is power in story and it can help give strength to other people. And so by writing the book, I feel like if somebody out there gets something out of it that helps them with something that they're facing, mm -hmm. then at least one good thing came out of this accident. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, it's it's just a tragedy, and so it's it's this attempt to salvage something from such an awful event. Well, I think your salvaging something is going to have a massive impact. I mean, you know, you're using the word story, and and my dad is is he's my hero in storytelling. He's one of the most phenomenal storytellers. In COVID, he had two strokes, 
and they finally figured out the issue and did heart surgery. To, but he went, he struggled and he still has moments where he struggles with, it was that immediate loss of independence. It was unable to try every, and he was very independent and like the man, right? Doing everything. And, and I didn't have a story like yours to be able to share with him, you know? And, and then people start getting, I don't know if this happened with your family. People got a little frustrated. They get a little you know, after a while, it's like, well, come on, why can't you just move forward? And and I'm like this because his whole life is completely upside down and inside out. And I didn't have a, elements of your story. I'm thinking, gosh, I wish I had that. The moment all of this happened, I will share it with him because I know that he still re, he reverts back to some of those. As soon as it's a transition that he can't, our house at the beach, can't do those steps anymore. And I'm watching him so frustrated, you know. That and I want to be able to and all of my brothers to meet him where he's at, right? And have a way to move forward together instead of people all getting. Why is this still happening? Why is this? You know, we're so far past this, but we're not sometimes, right? You know, it's so funny because I'm past it, but I'm not, I'll never be past it. You know, it is part of me. People will say, "Oh, do you mind talking about it?" And I sort of say, you know, you might as well ask me if I mind talking about what color my hair is. Like it's so much a part of me. Yeah. It's, it's maybe I'm just desensitized to it because I've lived with it for so long, but it's in a way you honor me by talking about it to me because it is very much who I am at this point. It absolutely shapes my perspective on everything that I do. So it, it, it ends up changing you as I think all real challenges. And, and I mean, unfortunately the tough parts are where we learn things, you know, Kristen with her boy's blindness diagnosis and, and me with my son's addiction issues and all, those are not the places that anybody willingly seeks out, but they are the places where you learn. And I would echo your statement, which I actually was writing down here about that sharing of your story and telling of your story gives it a purpose besides it just being a tragedy. And, and maybe at the end of the day, that's what we're all supposed to do with our challenges. It's right. Because they're all different. I never want to suggest that I know how other people feel just because I've been through this accident, but there, there really is power in sharing those stories because we can learn from each other. And I, I think you put it exactly right. I remember there's a there's a line in a book called The Book of Joy by Archbishop, De, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and mm-hmm. uh, the Dalai Lama. And there's a proverb in there I quoted in my book that wisdom is like rainwater. It gathers in the low places. And I really think there's wow. something to that. I really mm. to that. I like that. I can't wait to dive into your book. We've gotten such a teaser here with you. But one of the things and people that are listening... Because our, our biggest um, platform is the podcast, the audio part of this. But I want people to understand that are just listening. You you have a, a, a brightness in your in your face, even talking through the hard things. You have this light. And we were talking, for those of you that, that can't see it, there's like an orangish hue to, to where Geraldine is sitting in, in the beginning. She's like, I don't know, is this okay? And we're like, just go for it. And it's almost like it's it's per, it's like the it's almost like the sun is behind you or something with I, a yellow like light. the halos just coming oh, right down. Right hey, <laughs> this is a this is a hard. You've had a hard journey. You had a hard you know 
left turn there, a pivot in life and this light coming through you. And then you just giving us that proverb about that, the rain collecting in the low, that's, that's phenomenal. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's- I'd also add to that. There's a bit of, of peacefulness about you. Do you feel that? Do you feel that after having come through what you went through, do you, do you feel any sense of, all right, clearly God or the force or the whatever was with me. So I'm just going to take it every day and see what I can do to, you know, maybe help somebody else. You know, I do feel that I have a different perspective Mm. because the things that used to keep me awake at night, maybe I hit send before I was quite done email or, you know, I don't know, office politics, you name it. If I'm laying down at night and I start thinking about that stuff, I stop myself. I said, no, no, no. (laughs) You know, if there's one thing I really need to be strict with myself about, it's, you know, you got to focus on the things that matter. And I think of it as being given a gift. You know, I, I, I talked about it. I don't believe God had a plan for me because I believe he had a plan for those other people that passed, mm-hmm. but bad things happen and it's what we do with them. And I was given a gift. I was given a gift. And, and the concept of grace is defined as an undeserved, unmerited gift. And, you know, by the grace of God, I survived. It was a gift. It was an undeserved gift. But if you've been given a gift that big, you got to share it. You know, mm-hmm. the most selfish thing I could do would be to just go back to my normal life. Like nothing had happened. No, it's, it's too big for that. Yeah, I agree. Well, we could truly, truly carry this conversation on for, I'm sure, hours, if not days. But <laughs> we're going to let you get out of your orange glow there. But before we, that, <laughs> before we do that, wherever you happen to be, tell everybody where they can find you, Geraldine, and where they can get this wonderful book. Oh, thank you. Um, so I do have an author's website. It's GeraldineRitter.com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm starting to tweet a bit, usually on themes around resilience and positivity. And the book is Bone by Bone. It's on Amazon. It's on all the sites. And I've got a site for it called BoneByBoneBook.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Brilliantly Resilient Podcast. Join our Facebook group and follow us on YouTube to be inspired with tools to reset, rise, and reveal your brilliance.